You're listening to Team Talk, a podcast by the Evangelical Movement of Wales to support church leaders. third part of the interview between Mark Thomas and Dr Sinclair B Ferguson parts one and two are episodes six and seven thank you now could you comment on this for me there's a lot of emphasis on Christocentric preaching and evangelicalism Christ in all the scriptures um, that God reveals himself through his son and that the person and work in Christ is the foundation of the gospel not only to unbelievers, but in the Christian life, Christ preached nothing but Paul preached nothing but yes, Christ and yes, him crucified yes. as the whole framework of the application of redemption. And yet, the importance of our preaching being appropriately Trinitarian. Mm-hmm. Could you comment on that? Whether you feel as an imbalance here sometimes? Well, y- y- here here is what I think may be the imbalance. Now, I mean. You would be out of your mind, I think, as a preacher if you didn't understand that you had to preach Christ and him crucified and know nothing else. Mm. Uh, But Paul doesn't mean by that that he he knew nothing else or that he communicated nothing else. And I think, though, from one point of view, there has been a great re-emphasis on the importance of preaching Christ Mm. and preaching Christ from the Old Testament. But like everything that's a re-emphasis or a new emphasis, um, you need to be sure that you have actually caught the old emphasis. So the place where I begin in my, in my thinking about it um, in the current climate is to say my observation is that Luke 24, the narrative of the Emmaus Road, Luke 24 has been given preference over Matthew 28, 18 to 20. So that it would often be taken from Luke 24, Christ pointed to himself in all the scriptures. This is the end point of biblical revelation. And, I, you know, at that point, I want to... <coughs> Please, sir, didn't he say himself that the end point of revelation... And the beginning point of the whole of the Christian life was being baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that the ultimate telos of everything is not just that we should know Christ, but that we should know God. This is eternal life, to know him and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So from that point of view, um, I would say we need to be very careful that we are not engaging in a in a Christomonistic imbalance. I mean, you know there was a theologian in the earlier part, main part of the 20th century by the name of Karl Barth who's placed great emphasis on the person of Christ basically as the only mode of divine revelation. And people used to speak about his Christomonism. And I... I have come to the conclusion, actually, that evangelicalism, by and large, bounces from father monism to son monism to spirit monism. Um, 
and te has tended to regard the Trinity as a kind of, um, you know, abstract point of theology for which we would die because it's traditional, but it's not front and center in the way we think about the gospel and, and living the Christian life or about our preaching. So I would say that Christocentric preaching needs to be set into the context of the Trinity. So that, that would be the first thing. Second thing I think I would say is, and I guess this is a, a matter of maybe critical concern to me, um, that you have not preached Christ from the Old Testament when, I mean, the way I put it is when you have told me that the, the solution to the crossword puzzle of Genesis to Malachi is Jesus. What you have done is given me an ideology when what I need is a person. And I want to say, um, you know, if I, if I were to put it radically, I would say he's not, he is not in the Old Testament as the incarnate one. And it's only as the incarnate one that he saves us. And so please don't tell me that the people were getting kings that were malfunctioning and they needed a king who would function properly. And Jesus is that king. And think that you're preaching Christ from the Old Testament. All you're doing is solving the crossword puzzle. Um, and I think, I, you know, I want to say, if you want to learn to preach Christ from the Old Testament, you must first of all learn to preach him from the New Testament. And if you want to learn to preach Christ, you need to learn to preach him from the Gospels. Because he is today, as the exalted one, as Hebrews 13 says, the same as he was yesterday, which in the language of Hebrews means in the days of his flesh, in in the in the days covered by the Gospels, and I I I'm kind of struck by the fact that there seems to me to be much more interest in preaching from the Old Testament and showing one of the ten or eleven or six or twelve ways how you can get from there to Christ than there is actually in preaching Christ from the Gospels, and the reason that concerns me is that what people need is not the solution to the crossword puzzle, but Jesus himself. And I think that's what Paul means when he says, I was absolutely focused on preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. Does that mean he didn't preach the resurrection? No, what he's talking about is the Christ of the gospels. Um, and that's become a very, it's actually become a concern to me because although I said I don't listen to uh, all that, you know, I don't listen to preachers outside the preachers who are preaching to me live and, and uh, there, as it were. But I, you know, I catch this sense when I do hear some people that they're substituting an, an ideological Christ for the incarnate Christ. And what worries me about that is that people aren't really getting to know Christ himself that way. That they're, 
what they've been given is a hermeneutic rather than a Christology, to put it in technical terms. And you can't, you, you, I, I think you, you can't teach this methodologically. This can only be learned by the increasing personal absorption of all the details of Christ's revelation of himself in his incarnation. And it's, I, it's I, I, you know, like everyone else, it's much easier to handle the, 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 the systematic of things than to present the person um, and what we most, and what our people most of all need is the person. Yes. Ian Burns once said, the church is looking for better methods, God's looking for better men. Now, in terms of what you're saying there is recognising the importance of us experiencing the truth when we need to preach the truth, finding the sweetness of our application in our own lives, um, being men of the word, receiving a message from God. Do you feel that Bounds Point applies to preachers, particularly in the church? We should be working more on ourselves, perhaps, than on our sermons? Well, you know, I've quoted him enough, probably. Um, um, Yes, it does. Um, That doesn't mean that the end product is going to be an identicate. You know, I think there is, we are all summoned to this as Christians. Preachers have a special responsibility to this. And that's, I think that's pretty clear in the New Testament. Um, it's not that someone who is an elder and who is able to teach is some higher level of sanctity that you reach in some odd way, but that the person is very obviously an expression of the gospel. So if anyone in the congregation is asked, what do, what's a Christian like? You should be able to point and say, he's... A Christian is like that man. So in that sense, um, being a better man must be self-evident in the life of the minister. And way back, you know, I mean, the older older writers used to speak about, you know, one of the marks that someone was being called to the ministry was eminent godliness. and I think that that has been kind of downplayed often. Um, that does not, I think, in itself, because this is not a matter of if you put this into the slot machine, you'll get that candy bar out. Yeah. That is a different thing from our gifts, but it's related to the way we'll use our gifts and what will come through. Mm. Um, I'm actually, I, I often go back to um, Aristotle, the, the Greek philosopher, I mean, not personally, but uh, I go back to Aristotle's work on, on rhetoric, mm-hmm. where he uses this threefold division of logos, um, the, the, the reason and logic of your communication, uh, ethos or ethos, the integrity of the relationship between the person who is communicating and what he is communicating, um, and pathos or pathos, 
which is the way in which the message is communicated, is a manner that is consistent with and expressive of the emotion of the burden of the message itself. And that's, you know, I would put that theologically as a fine common grace statement, that he understood that God has wired us to receive communication in, in these ways. So that applying bounds principles, so what does this mean for me? Uh, you know, I've been looking for a bit, just, just get me a seminar that will give me a better method of preaching. And he's saying, you know, that is not the big deal. That is not the big deal. The big deal is that you should be this man who is getting better in Logos. That is, that the, the inner logic of the gospel is becoming increasingly clear to you and you're growing in your ability to articulate it. That your life is growing and matching that message and that the way in which you communicate it is a way in which the mode, the, the affections expressed in your communication match what it is that you're communicating. And what I think all of us are always needing, wanting, longing, praying to grow in that. And related there, of course, is the, the growth in our communion with God. Absolutely, yeah. yes. People need to be themselves. The church isn't a cult. We need to be sanctified versions of ourselves rather than like everyone else. That seems true of preachers. Yes. Do you feel there's yes. a danger of preachers being constrained to be like others rather than finding their own voice? Yeah, I do. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't know where I saw this, but um, you know there are all kinds of algorithms out there that throw up things on, on your screen. And I was throwing up this lecture by an African-American uh, lecturer or preacher, probably both, who I think may have been, he looked to me as though he was in, early for, in his early 40s, and um, his father had been a minister, or maybe even still was a minister, and he, he had this rather clever way of putting things. He said, his father had said to him, son, for the first five years of your ministry, you'll be trying to be somebody else. For the next five years, you'll be trying to find out who you actually are. And for the rest of your ministry, you'll be being that. And I appreciated that because there's an element of um, that kind of osmosis transfer of how you do it if you're, a, I think especially if you're a younger man, you tend almost inevitably to um, a mirror, at least mirror, the mode of preaching to which you've been accustomed. Now you may be either rebellious enough, eccentric enough, or brilliant enough not to do that, but I think it's totally understandable that that happens. I think where we can stumble at that point is that instead of that just happening, we consciously reformulate ourselves to make it happen. Or should we? Mm -hmm. mm. And then I think we build into ourselves artificialities. Mm. 
And if we've done that, then in that man's terms, the next five years become more difficult and they may not actually eventuate where we are trying to find out who we really are. Mm. Because, you know, if these things have, have happened by a kind of natural osmosis, then we're able to, um, you know, we're able to move from being caterpillars into butterflies of whatever kind, uh, naturally. If we've then consciously built in a kind of mimicry, because we've wrongly thought that the power lies in, and it can be anything, the mannerisms, the clothes, I mean, it's astonishing. Is it the black t-shirt? Is it the clerical collar? The voice style. You know, I mean, somebody once told me at the, the, the door of a church, he said, are you a real minister? I said, yes, I was religiously calm. <laughs> Slightly irritated. And he said, oh, where was the collar? I said, well, I don't usually wear a collar. Oh, he said, if you were wearing the collar, the power would have been there. You know? Um, whereas if, if it's been a natural osmosis, then it also should be a natural development to us to find our own voice and... A com- and this is back to um, ethos. It will then really be ourselves who is expressing the emphasis, atmosphere, etc., of the passage. Um, but I think if we failed to do that, it, I mean, it seems to me that we are we are likely then increasingly not only to appear as clones of somebody else. And, you know, go back to what I said about, you know, there's no way under the sun Isaiah and Ezekiel could have been put on an identity an identity parade mm-hmm. and anyone would have confused them with mm-hmm. one another. Um, that that variety is a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful thing in a church where there's more than... Indeed, the Westminster Divines recommended this, that there be more than one who preached, precisely because of this reason that otherwise there is a danger that the cloning process is going to go all the way down the line. And if there is a powerful ministry, then it ends up that people are not able to nourish themselves on anybody else's ministry or any other style of ministry. And I think, you know, I would want to say quite um, forcefully, um, that's not just unfortunate, that actually is a denial of what is embedded there in Scripture. It's not on the surface of the text of Scripture, but in a way it's on the surface of the difference between Paul's letter to the Romans and and John's Gospel, Um, Zechariah and Malachi. uh, It's in the flavour and it emerges. Um, So I I think it's, it's a very important thing. And it is one of... The, I think it's one of the challenges of the present time that you can you can watch your favourite preacher on you know wherever, um, and if you're a younger man, you need to be very guarded about that, because, you know, if you, I think if you've been around the block, you can probably sit and almost analyse the potato head, yeah. where there's a bit of him and a bit of him, and the man hasn't really found out who he himself is. I'm not very good at short answers. So. <laughs> no. Thank you so much. We're very grateful to you for spending time with us and helping us in this massive topic. Just one last question for you. 
are there particular resources or any particular thing you would like to say to encourage the preachers that are listening to this today? Oh, these are the questions you don't like. You know, one thing to encourage is, so if I was 16 when I first preached, I'm 73 now, so by my arithmetic, that's 57 years. And there is, no, I mean, of course, I don't know anything else in the world, but I cannot imagine anything in the world that has been a greater privilege than being a minister to people, which is just such a privilege. But having people sitting under your ministry, I mean, the, the, in, in, in my best experiences, you know, I would have people sitting, listening to the expositions three or four different times in the week and seeing the effect of that. And it is, it's, you know, it's death and resurrection all the way. It can be exceedingly painful um, um, because the congregation in all its bits and pieces goes through, right through your soul. Um, but it is, you know, stick at it through thick and thin because it is really the most glorious privilege, I think, to have in the world to point people to Christ in this very public way and to have the bonds with people that you are the person who keeps pointing them to Jesus. Um, and, you know, I think that is just the greatest thing. Resources. Um, you know, I've probably got shelves of books on preaching and I'm sure there's something in each of them, but there are not, there are not many books on preaching that have kind of really stayed with me. Funnily enough, one of the books on preaching that has stayed with me is one that, that I, you know, very few people would want to read today, and that's Dabney's lectures on sacred rhetoric because of some of the emphasis that he makes that go back to this Aristotelian tradition, not so much logos, ethos, and pathos, uh, but, for example, the principle of unity and how people think. Um, and that is, that's a very important part of preaching, how people think. Um, and then, you know, you, know you, need to be, you need to be brain dead not to be stimulated to want to be a better preacher by, by Dr. Lloyd-Jones preaching and preachers. That will not tell you how to craft a sermon, which he regarded as an abomination anyway, if I remember rightly. Um, but that's what we want, you know, just to feel this is the greatest thing and I want to do it better is the sine qua non, I think, of growing as a preacher. And, you know, just in case anyone is in any doubt, like after 57 years, you still think that you're beginning um, and wishing you could do better. But thanking God that you, that you have done it and, you know, that people still ask you to do it. So um, I, I think what I found most stimulating, actually, is listening to ministers describe how they do it. Because I think, and, you know, I haven't taught preaching, but sometimes students have said to me, you know, what, what do you think? And I've said, well, whenever you listen to somebody, stick another head on your shoulders and listen to the message as a member of the congregation. But, and this applies to writing as well and reading and writing. But on your other head, head ask the question, what is he doing here that is so helpful?
And that usually has almost nothing to do with gesticulations, mannerisms. It's the way he is handling the very fabric of Scripture. So I have found listening to other preachers, just talking about preaching has been a real stimulus to me. And thinking analytically about other people's preaching and having people who will invest in you, watch over you, care for you. So thanks for having me. Thank you.